This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, or should I say, G'day Mates. We're journeying into another thrilling episode of Equity Mates. We're not just horsing around, we're galloping through the financial track. Whether you're a rookie foal or a financial stallion, our aim is to lead you from the starting gate to the gate to the winner's circle. As always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. And who am I? You, I mean, are you a generic Melbourne Cup horse? Hold on, hold on, hold on. Is it a specific, like, uh, animal or person? Yeah. Are you Farlap? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there was nothing specific. I know, it was very yeah. general. Yeah, very I was going to go to Man from Snowy River, but... Yeah. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. Nice, well played. Well, anyway, um, enough horsing around. Let's get on with today's episode. And we're joined by another expert who is uh, pitching at the Sown Hearts and Minds Investment Conference coming up on November 17th. And that is Ashish Swarup, who is the Portfolio Manager and Investment Analyst at Akia Investment Management. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Ashish and Tom Norton, who we uh, had on the show last week, are both getting up and pitching one stock, their highest conviction stock for the next 12 months at the Hearts and Minds Conference. Um, But in this episode, we're going to speak to Ashish about his specialty, emerging markets. We're going to talk about what's happened in emerging markets as we end 2023. And then we've asked Ashish to bring a couple of stocks uh, for us to talk about uh, and unpack. Unfortunately, it won't be the stock he's pitching at Hearts and Minds. He's not allowed to tell us that, um, but two fascinating stocks, I'm sure. Yes, can't wait. Uh, if you are interested in seeing what Ashish, Tom, and all of the other experts pitch at the Sown Hearts and Minds conference, tickets are available for the virtual conference. Uh, Equity Mates get a 20% discount on the virtual tickets. The code is EquityMates2023, all one word, and it brings the price down to $400 with all proceeds going towards uh, medical research. So we will include a link in the show notes for you to access that. It's it's an amazing conference each year. Now, if you're listening to this episode on the day it drops, as I'm sure everyone does, uh, (laughs) the conference is tomorrow. If you're listening to this after the 17th of November, whilst you have missed the conference, uh, make sure you're listening to the Equity Mates Investing Podcast on Monday, where we talk about all of the stocks picked. 
So um, don't worry if you've missed the conference. We're going to be talking about everything we learnt, all the stocks that were spoken about. So um, you won't miss out if you're listening to Equity Mates Investing Podcast. But Bryce, let's get to Ashish. Before we do, uh, a reminder that whilst we are licensed, we are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Any advice you hear is general only. This show is for education and entertainment purposes only. Uh, and always do your own research. And if you feel you need it, seek professional advice. With that said, let's get to Ashish. Ashish, welcome to Equity Mates. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Now, today we're going to spend a bit of time speaking about hearts and minds, then dive into all things emerging markets as we end 2023, and then uh, have a look at two stocks that uh, are either in your funds or that uh, you find interesting at the moment. So let's start at the top. You're preparing to pitch at uh, the Sone Hearts and Minds Investment Conference. Why is participating important to you? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the questions. Good question. I think emerging markets uh, traditionally uh, are seen as a very risky uh, asset class where uh, quite a few investors uh, are usually scared away because of the volatility of the asset class. Uh, while we believe um, emerging markets actually offer excellent um, you know, potential for returns long term, and the way we invest or EKN is, is that we want to protect the downside while thinking about uh, you know good sort of upside long term. So we want to demonstrate um, this investment approach uh, or at least, you know, the stock picks as per this investment approach to investors. And that's why we think it's important to highlight that there is a less risky way to invest in an asset class, which is just seen as very risky traditionally. I love that. I mean, the broad umbrella term that is emerging markets is, you know, the majority of the world at this point. So um, there's so much diversity within uh, that, that category and we'll get to that. But let's start with your investment philosophy. You, you mentioned, I guess, a key element there is, um, you know, approaching a, an asset class that is seen as traditionally risky, uh, but approaching it in a, in a way that protects the downside. But how else? What are the other elements to your investment philosophy? So, yeah, I mean, so the first thing, uh, like I said, is the down, protection of downside risk is quite important. So the way we think about risk is not just, um, you know, uh, minimizing the permanent loss or potential to permanent loss of capital but also lowering the volatility um, of returns uh, for investors. And we think just keeping people invested is half the battle because what happens most of the times is people sort of sell out at the wrong time uh, from the market, they get scared away. So we think of this downside risk protection, which is lowering both permanent loss of capital or risk of permanent loss of capital, but as well as lowering the volatility, both are actually important. Um, now, how we do it is quite interesting. So we look for... Uh, companies where we think uh, there is a major shareholder. So we usually invest in owner managed companies uh, and where we think people have or the owners have sold in the game. So it's not just their entire net worth uh, is invested alongside us as minority investors in that company, but their sense of self worth is associated with that company. So if something goes wrong with that company, they sort of suffer their you know loss of uh, almost like a existential crisis personally. So that's the type of the companies we look for where people have soul in the game. And which basically means from our perspective that those companies are managed in a very highly risk aware fashion. So you know the owner is taking care of it because their entire self-worth is associated with that, then we can also you know sleep well at night. The last thing here is that we also are quite uh, valuation sensitive. So what we call our approach is quality at reasonable price, where we don't compromise on quality of the owners of the companies, but at the same time, never overpay for those companies. Um, and, and yeah, so that, that's really the approach. Mm. 
And so Ashish, when you're preparing for the Hearts and Minds Conference, you're looking at a, a, a high conviction stock for the next 12 months. How do you wrap up that investment philosophy and, and, uh, and then choose something that's going to perform over the next 12 months? Yeah, it's it's a quite a tricky question. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's it's a very long term uh, investment approach. So we usually have five to seven years holding period uh, for any companies we buy in a portfolio. Some of the companies in the portfolio have been held for, you know, more than 10 years. Um, so we really take a long term view. But usually what we have seen is that the stocks which work on a slightly shorter term view, like, you know, 12 to 18 months are the ones where the valuation anomaly is extreme, you know, where something is going to change or correct over the next 12 months, which will, you know, um, help the market price it more appropriately. So we we apply this additional sort of um, criteria when we thought about which stock to pick for, you know, Hearts and Minds conference. Love it. Well, looking forward to your pitch uh, on the 17th of November. If uh, the Equitymates community are interested in hearing the pitch, there is an option to uh, be there live and and buy tickets. There is also an option to uh, buy an online subscription and watch it digitally. Uh, All the information for both will be in our show notes. So uh, check it out if you're interested in uh, hearing Ashish and all the other experts pitch their stocks on the day. But Ashish, uh, you mentioned that you are an expert in emerging markets. And, um, you know, as I said earlier, it's a categorization for the majority of stock markets around the world that covers, you know, the majority of the world's population. So it's such a broad categorization. Let's narrow it down a little bit. Were there any particular emerging markets that you found interesting uh, in 2023? Yeah, I mean, again, it's very, very good point because emerging markets, again, uh, you know, they sort of club together uh, for no sort of, you know, rhyme reason. You could say that like why uh, Colombia or, or, you know, sort of Mexico is clubbed together with China or India, which is totally different countries, different points in the economic cycle. But I think one um, common element uh, which sort of uh, unites these countries is the fact that these countries do not have um, as a strong a rule of law or um, as, let's say, developed markets like Australia, UK or US. Also, the quality of institutions like, you know, um, court system, um, the institutions around economic policymaking, the democracy, uh, those type of institutions are much weaker in these markets. So what basically it means from a minority investor's point of view like us is that a lot of things which you take for granted in markets like UK, Australia, US uh, do not exist here. So there's no uh, protection, not much protection for minority rights. Uh, There is no um, sort of activist investing and so on. So therefore, uh, we think our investment approach, which is just focused on, you know, backing what we call high quality owners or high quality sort of owner managed companies work very well, because ultimately what you're doing is finding good entrepreneurs, good wealth creators, and, and sort of, you know, backing them long term. Um, now, the problem, what we have seen is that yeah, a lot of times we do not find any of these uh, entrepreneurs in countries, a lot of countries. So, for example, in Russia, we have had zero investments for the last 10 years because every um, listed Russian company we looked at or analyzed from bottom-up perspective turned out to be very close to President Putin. So, <laughs> that's a law, law we applied where, you know, every... If any company we're backing or entrepreneur we're backing is close to the political power or politicians, we stay away because you don't really know when the political power shifts. So, so therefore, um, yeah, so it's a very bottom-up approach. But from a top-down perspective, we generally like countries with better rule of law or uh, at least uh, some sort of you know a checks and balances in the system. 
Um, so yeah, so answer your question. A lot of countries are ruled out under our investment approach. So I mentioned Russia, but Saudi Arabia, the same thing, because uh, every company there is sort of linked to royal family. A lot of frontier markets are ruled out because they do not offer um, strong enough governance uh, from our perspective. Um, so the country we find interesting, uh, obviously India is quite interesting uh, to us. I mean, India, uh, obviously there is a democracy there. Um, all the rule of law is not perfect, but at least slightly better than most other markets in our universe. And there is a huge um, private sector or like the culture of entrepreneurship where you see a lot of companies listed in the stock market. We also uh, find interesting companies in China at the moment. So China is harder for us. So our success rate of finding, uh, again, purely private companies, you know, with, with no links to politicians is very low in China. So we reject almost 99% of companies we look at China. Uh, but there are 1% of companies where we think they are interesting. And China currently is quite out of favor. So that it offers quite interesting valuation opportunities to us. So I would say probably China and India looking very interesting. Mm. So what one of your key principles in the fund is not to try and predict the economy or the stock market. And you just mentioned there, you know, India, that's a that's an interesting example, because, you know, so many uh, investors that we speak to, uh, the, the sort of the basis or the thesis for investing in India is the the economic potential and prospects over the next sort of decade or so or, or even more. So then how do you take that principle and then marry it with, you know, investing in emerging markets where so much of the company's fortunes are tied to the economic potential over the next decade or, as you said, political um, fortunes? Yeah, so no, we, we, do, we do think about economy, but we do think, we think it in terms of purely bottom-up perspective. So we don't really run um, a sort of country allocation model where we sort of decide, let's go over with India or over with China. We don't do that. But when we are looking at, uh, from a bottom-up perspective, let's say a bank in India, we do think about what's the future sort of, you know, long-term growth potential for a bank. And if you're thinking about that, then you have to sort of somehow think about the economy. So, but we we think about economy slightly different way uh, versus many other investors, because we think that a lot of times the high GDP growth, um, you know, do not translate into high stock market returns. So if you actually, China is a very good example of that, where if you uh, look at China's GDP growth for last 15 years, it has grown the economy at you know six seven percent um, CAGR, but if you look at the stock price returns, it's it's almost close to zero. So your GDP growth has not turned out uh, as good for you know your um, shareholders or minority investors. So what we look for is GDP growth combined with uh, wealth creation opportunities. So I mean the reason it didn't work out very well in China was a lot of GDP growth was driven by. Uh, uh, yeah, government. So government institutions or large government-owned banks, uh, which sort of, you know, create a lot of GDP through construction or property market and so on, which which was not really that wealth creation. So what we look for is, are the companies' uh, bottom-up perspective benefiting? Uh, and then are do they actually create wealth or create value for shareholders? And uh, we think India actually is an interesting uh, country because not only the growth prospects are actually quite bright, like you pointed out, but also um, we think there's plenty of opportunities uh, from a stock market perspective, which are, you know, private sector oriented, where entrepreneurs have a wealth creation track record whom we can back and, you know, um, back for long term. 
I love that. So uh, we want to get to a couple of key stocks uh, later in this conversation, and that might draw out some of the themes that you're touching on there when it comes to your approach. China and India have certainly dominated the conversation around emerging markets, and it makes sense. Those two countries together are, are a third of the world's population. But are there any other um, emerging markets or any other themes that are emerging in these economies that you find yourself and the team spending more and more time on? Yeah, I mean, again, a very good point. So, I mean, the broad theme, I think, with we sort of play long term again is, is, is I mean it's not it's not really a revelation is is consumption and and sort of gradual sort of wealth creation in these economies. Um, China India is not the only ones like you said. It's actually Indonesia is very interesting as well. Indonesia is quite a large country and and going down you know the path of economic growth uh, which sort of other countries followed in the region. Uh, not just that we also think uh, Mexico is looking very interesting. Uh, Mexico is also benefiting from. Um, near showings, a lot of companies which are moving out of China, they're manufacturing out of China, uh, trying to now um, locate manufacturing in Mexico, which is very close to America. Um, so Mexico is benefiting from that. Uh, we also like Chile in Latin America, Brazil. So there's quite a few countries, but the broad theme around this is that what we like is um, trying to play or trying to benefit from um, gradual middle-class expansion, uh, creation of wealth, um, you know, and then and the other thing which is happening at the same time is that at least in China, the population is aging. So you not just have people who are getting richer, but also older, which creates opportunities in sectors like healthcare, um, which is quite interesting to us. Um, I think the one other thing which is usually people don't talk about when talk about emerging markets is technology, where uh, what we see, and especially, you know, I live in UK, so I can just see the contrast between UK and India. So, in, you know, India, if, for example, if you go now, a lot of times you don't have to use cash. So you can just use your phone to uh, make payments. And same thing in China. China, you actually can't even use cash if even if you want to, because most places wouldn't take cash. <laughs> they just want you, expect you to pay through your mobile, which is so different from, let's say, in a sort of older or slightly more advanced economy like UK, where still a lot of people use cash. So we think uh, a lot of these markets are leapfrogging uh, in terms of their technology adoption. And they are actually in certain ways a lot more advanced um, versus, you know, the traditional economies when it comes to use of technology um, and, and things like mobile payments, which actually opens up quite interesting opportunities um, from, a, you know, from investing perspective. Um, the last thing I would say is that these economies are not just consumption centers. Like you said, they obviously consumption centers because, you know, large part of the world population live there, but not just that. Because once you have a winning business in, let's say, China, India, Indonesia, then you want to then win the world. You want to then uh, expand your business outside your country and try to win market share elsewhere. So you see that all the time. A lot of Chinese businesses are now you know, trying to trying to go out and win. Like you see ByteDance, TikTok, you see Pinduoduo, you, you know, so many companies trying to go out and you know, win market shares abroad. And that's what you see more and more. So... Indian IT services companies, Indian pharma companies, Chinese tech companies, they want to be global winners. And that's another theme which we try to benefit from, where you, if you identify a very high quality entrepreneurs, business family, who was very ambitious and driven and hardworking, then you just back them for not just, not just win their own country, but also win abroad. Yeah. 
I love that. Well, let's um, let's turn to two specific companies and, and unpack some of these themes, understand what the companies do and why you like them. Uh, there are two companies that we've got from different, well, I was about to say different parts of the world. They're both from Asia, but from different countries. Uh, Uni President from Taiwan and then Kotak Mahindra Bank from India. Great. Now, both, both, both very good examples and they sort of also illustrate our investment approach. So, uh, Unipresident is, is quite a, and essentially one of the key tenets of our investment approach, like I mentioned before, is is basically um, you know invest in companies which are um, slow and steady. So they are not uh, you know going to grow fifty percent in a year and then you know collapse next year. So that's not our style. So our style is really invest in companies which are steady compounding uh, companies which give you you know, decent return uh, every year and for next, you know, 15, 20, 30 years. Uh, so that's the type of company Unipresident Enterprises is. So it's super boring. Most people ignore it because it's so boring. Let, let's get to it. But let, let's start with, with what the company does because I haven't heard of it before and I'm sure a, a lot of others haven't. So let's start at the basics. What does it do? And then let's let's get into it from there. Yeah. So basically Unipresident Enterprises, they sell um, noodles and tea. So they sell noodles and tea in Taiwan, in China, they also run um, convenience store chains in Taiwan and Philippines and China. Uh, they also have uh, a food business in Southeast Asia. So it's a very um, boring business. Uh, you know, it's it's nothing really changes from year to year. Um, what they do, they actually dominate it. So they have very high market share in uh, convenience uh, retail in Taiwan, in Philippines. Um, and they have very high market share in uh, noodles and tea in China. So that gives them, their basically economics are very stable. Uh, it's it's a family-owned business where, again, family, uh, their large part of the net worth is linked to this business. So they have really what you call soul in the game in, in keeping, making sure that this business stays well. So from our perspective, from a shareholder perspective, what it does, it gives you, uh, you know, if you look back last 15 years, for example, it has given you like 15% uh, annualized dollar returns uh, in, in that with this business type of, you know, very stable business. And the returns are a mix of uh, earnings growth, cash flow growth and dividends payout. So dividend payout is quite healthy as well. And this is what we like. Uh, we think if you actually look forward next 10 years, uh, there is there is a very high probability that company will deliver the same, you know, 14, 15% US dollar returns. Uh, from a free cash flow perspective, uh, this is about, you know, um, uh, 12 times or 13 times free cash flow, which is excellent valuation in our view. Yeah, so that's what we like about this. It's funny, Ashish. Uh, we spoke to another Hearts and Minds speaker, uh, Tom Norton, uh, a couple of days ago, and he also uh, had a. He's also from the UK, and he also told us about a company, not the same company, but an Asian company that was big in the noodle business. Noodles, yeah. <laughs> uh, First Pacific from Hong Kong. So uh, I'm not sure how familiar What's you with are noodles? with that company, but I guess which company makes better noodles, Unipresident or First Pacific? Yeah, so no, 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 I, we, we quite, I mean, we know First Pacific very well. It's just that uh, we, uh, from uh, from ownership perspective, that wouldn't pass our governance test, First Pacific. So it would not pass because we think there are issues around the, the owners of that company. So I think First Pacific was also family run, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. it's family owned. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's owned by a Salim family in Indonesia Salim, where, yeah. you know, Salim family is not something we will back. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. So how big can a noodle company get? That's that's the question. What's the prospects for Unipresident over the next decade or so? Very, very interesting. So like if you look back, if you go back 20, 30 years, uh, originally, they sold noodles and tea in Taiwan. Uh, you know, that's the origins of the company. And then they have convenience retail chain in Taiwan. So we think 
this is one of the first uh, sort of companies where they figured out that if you control the retail channel, which they did, convenience retail. I mean, if you go to Taiwan, convenience is basically the main retail format because, you know, every apartment block has a 7-Eleven, um, which these guys run. Um, and people use 7-Eleven for everything to pick up their breakfast. If they're walking out of the door to their office, they pick some dumplings in the morning from 7-Eleven for breakfast. And they, when they come back, they pick up, you know, milk, groceries. Um, they also use 7-Eleven to pick up the e-commerce parcels um, or, you know, ship it back if they want to return the parcel. So it's basically their life. Uh, so with they, they realize that once you control through such big hold on people's lives, then you can actually also sell more food products. So then they kind of started using their 7-Eleven stores to sell their own food products, which is noodles and tea and dairy in Taiwan. And that was around, I think, uh, that's basically around the 80s and 90s when they built this business up. In mid-90s, they entered China, saying that, look, now China is the next market, so we need to be here. So they then uh, started growing the noodles and tea business in China, which is still growing. I mean, it's quite surprising that uh, it's sort of uh, the volume growth is maybe not that high, especially Chinese, because they consume a lot of noodles and tea already. But what they've been doing for the last 10 years is they are premiumizing the products. So... Then tea, for example, they launched different variations of healthier teas, so less sugar tea and and more sort of, uh, you know, advanced teas in the sense that if you use less sugar in a tea, the flavor has to be even better because people then taste the flavor because without sugar, with sugar, people don't taste the flavor. They just taste sugar. So so that you can charge higher price for the tea. Uh, same thing with noodles. If you put more meat, more more vegetables, noodles, you can higher price. You can actually now they're moving towards ready to eat food. So not just noodle, you can have a hot pot, you can heat it up and then eat it. So it's actually higher price again. So that's really, uh, to us, it's uh, an example of constant innovation, constant innovation and gradually sort of, you know, with your same client customers, you, you could, you know, that you can actually get more wallet share with those customers. And that's really the approach. Then about 20 years back, um, around early 2000s, they entered Philippines think that uh, Philippines offers uh, what Taiwan offered in the early 50s, which is early stage economic growth um, and much larger population than Taiwan. And they can be an island country, which they can they thought they can dominate. So then now they own 50 percent market share of convenience retail in Philippines. Um, and they plan to do the same thing in Philippines, where they again launch noodles and tea in Philippines and gradually dominate the market. Once they do that, the next stage is Vietnam, which they're trying to enter. So it is just uh, it, they sort of have the formula which they have perfected in Taiwan, and now they're sort of gradually rolling it out across Asia, which which is what we love. Yeah, <laughs> you, you say you know that they you, you you downplay it a little bit. You know they they go into a country and they they slowly grow, but having fifty percent market share in a country of I'm not sure Philippines population, but I'm guessing somewhere between a hundred and two hundred million. Uh, like that's a massive market and a meaningful market share in that market. Well, yeah, they, they're very good at what they're doing. Uh, they are one of the best operators of 7-Eleven globally in terms of economics, the way they run their stores, and this idea of constant innovation. So, you know, last time I went to Taiwan and visited some of their stores, they they now launched, um, you know, things like fresh food, fresh uh, juices in their stores. So you could go to Taiwan 7-Eleven and get a fresh juice made for you. They have a really nice variety of coffee in 7-Eleven. You can actually pick a coffee from 7-Eleven stores, which is amazing. So just this constant innovation is what we like. Mm. Yeah. I haven't been to Taiwan, but I have. Ex- we've experienced that service 
at Seven uh, Elevens in Japan. Yeah, yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. They had a deep fryer next to the cash register because the <laughs> their karage was that that fresh. So, Shish, uh, one thing uh, you, you mentioned there. So, they're a Taiwanese company, uh, and you mentioned that they uh, had a presence in mainland China. How do you think? Is there risk there for Taiwanese companies with you know a, a percentage of their business coming from mainland China? What, what's the geopolitics of that? Yeah, so I mean that's that's something we think about a lot. So in this case, the way we get some comfort is that um, the Chinese company has a Hong Kong listing, so it's sort of seen as a very local business. So although they have an equity stake in it, but actually it's got also have a local Hong Kong listing, and the Chinese company is entirely managed by mainland Chinese. So there is no um, sort of you know remote control or managed from Taiwan. So the CEO of Chinese company is the mainland Chinese who has worked there for 20 plus years um, and been entire Chinese business is managed by mainland Chinese, which is quite extremely important. Um, and yeah, that those two things. Um, and also we think, especially something like food items is one of the things where this is definitely not top of the agenda for Chinese government because they are more worried about technology, uh, things which matter from, from their national security perspective. So, Noodles and teas, perhaps the last thing they need to worry about. So that was uh, Uni President Enterprises. Uh, now, Ashish, we're just going to take a very quick, quick break. And then on the other side, we're going to dig into an Indian company. So we'll be right back. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Equity Mates. We're here with Ashish Swarup, a portfolio manager and investment analyst at Akia Investment Management. Now, we've just uh, heard about one of the largest noodle manufacturers in Asia. <laughs> We're going to take a bit of a different turn and move to banking in India. So, the company is Kotak Mahindra Bank. I guess it's in the name, but uh, what does it do, Ashish? And then, uh, and then why is it attractive to you? Yeah, no. So, um, so it's a, it's it's a bank, like you said, and it's it's uh, it's basically a founder owner managed or owner run bank. Um, uh, it's uh, it's founded by this uh, individual called Uday Kotak, who we think is one of the smartest entrepreneurs uh, in 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 the world, definitely in our universe. Uh, so, if you go back in 1980s, he started this bank with um, an auto lending business. So it was used to be uh, only focused on lending for cars. 
uh, and, and vehicles in India. And then eventually he turned it into one of the leading banks um, in the country. And the way he did it is actually amazing. So quite interesting story. So the way he runs the bank is actually uh, two principles. One is that he uh, wants to um, have a very strong deposit base. So essentially take care of um, the customers or service of the of the customers is excellent. You know, the leading bank in terms of the service. But at the same time, he runs the lending book with a very high level of risk control. So, uh, you know, his track record in terms of credit costs or um, in terms of, you know, loan losses is the one of the best in the country. And this is what we like, where if you step back a little and think about Indian banking industry. Um, so Indian banking industry is quite interesting because about 70% of Indian banking industry is dominated by state-owned banks. And state-owned banks usually, uh, you know, are not for minority shareholders. They run for, uh, you know, uh, policy objectives. So if the government wants those banks to lend and juice up the economy, those will lend. And, uh, and but the, their losses are enormous because they don't really think whom they're lending to uh, because it's not their money after all. It's shareholder or it's taxpayers' money. So um, therefore, a lot of those banks uh, from time to time blow up and their service is not very good. You know, if you go to those state-owned bank branches in India, the service is not very good. So people are not very happy. So they lose their customers, deposit customers quite easily. So 30% of the market is uh, dominated or controlled by private banks like Kotec Bank. And Kotec is one of the leading uh, private banks. And gradually, those private banks are gaining market share uh, against those state-owned banks, as you would uh, expect. Now, the other interesting thing about uh, Indian banking industry is that Indian banking penetration is extremely low. So India is still uh, a poor country, uh, and a lot of people do not have uh, you know, proper bank accounts. Uh, you know, Even if they do, they don't take loans. So the lending penetration is one of the lowest in the world especially for consumers. And that's where the sort of Kotec or Kotec Mindra Bank focuses on. It's largely consumer-driven bank. Um, they're not really driven by corporate um, and consumer and small, medium enterprises where, you know, their bread and butter is. Um, so if you then summarize, if you, uh, you know, uh, go back 25, 30 years, they compounded their book value at, you know, close to 15, 20% US dollar terms. Uh, and we think given the, nature of opportunity in front of them, they can easily do it uh, for next, you know, 20 years. Um, and for that, um, you know, you, we think the valuation currently is very attractive. It's, um, it's a fascinating uh, story. We've had, uh, we've had an expert speak about our HDCF bank. Is that HDC or FC HDFC. bank? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, they, they spoke, I guess, some similar themes, you know, in, in a, a large country with an underbanked population. They they spoke about it being a well-run bank, and um, there was a lot of opportunity there. With, with such an underbanked population, um, and you know, Reliance Geo is uh, pushing ahead with like the world's cheapest smartphone, and it, it feels like India is primed to for a lot of people to uh, to embrace digital payments before traditional banking with, with these uh, cheaper smartphones, and as, as they get people online. How do you think about the competitive threat from a, a Reliance Geo and, and some of these tech companies that I believe uh, they're also pushing into banking? I think Geo has its own bank. How, how do you think about the coming competition there? Yeah, I mean, again, very good question. So let me say two things there. One is that, um, yeah, so a lot of these payment companies we've seen, not just in India, I mean, elsewhere in our universe, come up and at least, you know, be very successful in opening new accounts. Uh, with 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 clients, customers, and you know at least threaten the banks from a deposit taking perspective. Um, but what we've seen is that 
banking is bit more than just deposit taking or payments because banking is a lot more about managing risks and i mean in a country like india where you know there is not much history really of lending and borrowing what you can see is that lending money is very easy you know you can give money to anyone you want but collecting is very difficult so you know people just uh, just taking the money getting the money back is very very hard i mean you have models like after pay in india where you know people just give in money because you're just buying online but then those default rates are massive in those cases because collecting money is very very difficult so that's where we see a lot of these newcomers um, in the industry may falter because they coming from a tech background they're technology companies and they're not financial companies and as a technology company your discipline around collection discipline around credit risk control may not be as strong as a traditional banker so that's the i think the first point around to highlight and you've seen it elsewhere so you've seen it a lot of the new banks in brazil for example blew up recently because they just couldn't control the credit cost and you've seen that actually in case of uh, some other markets as well um now the second thing which is actually makes us a little bit more comfortable on cotec is a cotec is the leading digital bank now in the country so their their app we call 811 app and the sort of digital sort of bank is actually the leading bank um and they collecting a lot of uh sort of new age um sort of customers in their 20s uh, and they are also one of the biggest payment processors so they also embrace technology um and yeah and they're very quite advanced in that so that gives us a second level of comfort so if you're looking at uh at, at kotak you know if it successfully executes how, how do you how do you expect it to grow over the next decade what what how big can this can this get yeah so uh, we think so india indian let's say gdp growth which we think quite conservatively can grow you know 6 7% a year in terms of you know dollar sort of uh, you know uh, real gdp growth uh and then slightly more in nominal terms is it all terms the 8 9% nominal gdp growth and we think what india the stage of the economy is usually uh, the banks or the bank credit grows uh, at a multiple of gdp growth like 1.5 times typically so it's like bank the system credit can grow 12 13% easily um kotec on the other side actually gaining market share like i said kotec systematically gaining market share against the state owned banks um so kotec will grow 1.3 1.4 times a system growth which is you know 16 17% loan growth um with a very high return on equity so the return on equity is you know is actually very high um the capital base is very high so they don't need to issue more more equity uh, so we think uh, it can easily compound its book value at 20% plus um over next decade and this is what actually is done if you look back uh, of the history of the bank so and if you know and it's always kept its multiple price to book multiple um and so it sort of gives you at least 15 to 20% return in dollar terms um, that's essentially why we like it so much it's fascinating uh ashish before we wrap while we're speaking about uh indian banking uh, i and financial services i want to ask you about one other company and if you haven't looked at it much uh that's that's okay uh we had a an expert come on the show a couple of months ago and talk to us about uh bajaj finserve um and the amount of data they were collecting and the, what they're trying to do with that data and how they're trying to predict like customer uh behaviors and and then allocate i guess their resources accordingly have you had much of a look at, at that company and uh what do you think yeah so i'm i'm you know i'm i'm actually a computer engineer by training so i'm quite a bit skeptic when people talk to me about how to you know use algorithms to predict stuff so uh, but look i mean I, we have looked at bajaj finance we have analyzed the company and it's a great company look they have 
very good track record, at least uh, in the near term. So what, but what we look for in addition to, uh, you know, those algorithms and technology is that what we look for is an, an evidence of uh, successfully navigating um, down cycles. So we think uh, your lending book or your quality of lending book is not really proven till the time you've actually gone through some bad economic times or you know just to see how your book behaves when times are tough because in good times everybody can claim to be high quality you know so when the bad times hit only then you test who's actually good and who's bad so we think in case of bajaj finance they have not really been tested through bad economic cycle yet because india has been only doing well since 2012 13 when they actually became big uh, so we think we're just waiting for them to see how they behave during bad times kotek on the other hand has successfully navigated several bad cycles uh, that's why we like kotek more well we did a, a deep dive on on that company with uh with surab not too long ago so if you're interested in hearing more about it uh, check it out in our podcast feed but ashish that does bring us to the end of uh, our our conversation today thank you so much for your time we're very much looking forward to what you're going to pitch at uh, the sown hearts and minds conference and if uh, if you're listening along and uh, you'd like to find out what ashish along with uh, many of the other experts from around the world will be pitching at the conference there is a link in the show notes to grab tickets uh, the discount for the equity mates community is equity mates 2023 all one word and that'll give you 20% off the virtual tickets Uh, the conference is on November 17th and all proceeds go towards medical research. So it's a fantastic conference. We wish you all the best, Ashish. Picking stocks for a 12-month period is probably one of the hardest things in yeah, the game. Yeah, we don't we don't envy you at all, but we wish you all the best and yes. uh, we hope to see you when you're in Sydney. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs, or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have physicians in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you chiching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, thirty six percent better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Get a one dollar per month trial period at Shopify. dot com slash work. Shopify. dot com slash work.